Now you want to talk about reading? Let's talk about reading. Let me tell you of the days of high adventure. The book served as a passageway to the evil worlds beyond. Ready to go, Doc? Oh, yes, yes, my dear fellow. I'll just check the gyroscopes. Hello, and welcome back to the Appendix N Book Club. This is episode 103, where we are discussing Mervyn Peake's Titus Groan. With me today is that 78th Earl of Groan, Lord Hoy. Uh, I will uh, groan even more. as. <laughs> <laughs> And we are also joined by author and game designer behind iconic RPG titles such as Veins of the Earth, Deep Carbon Observatory, Maze of the Blue Medusa, and Silent Titans, as well as a contributor to the Jim Henson's Labyrinth RPG, Patrick Stewart. Patrick, thank you for joining us today. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you, Patrick. So tell us about how you got into gaming. Gaming, I think, dates well. Uh in secondary or high school, I was too neurotic to join up with the role players. Later on, after uh, college, I ended up in my uh, home city, and I was wandering around and picked up what I think was that very early Game Jam book. There was a series called Game Chefs back in like 2000-something, I don't know. And that was the first then first thing after secondary school that I had, was ever connected to RPGs. From that point on, I got deeper and deeper into it, and I caught the beginning of the OSR blogosphere sometime around 2008-2009. In uh, 2011, I started my own blog, and that became reasonably well popular, and then I started making products first through drive through RPG, and then through Lamentations, and finally ended up publishing my own stuff. Fantastic. And what is your history with... Reading, speculative fiction, fantasy, horror, science fiction, things like that. Uh, I think it, it's so deep, it almost isn't history. I think since I was little, I was, it was the one thing I was very good at in school, and I was very pleased to be rewarded for being good at something. So I kind of just kept doing it. Uh, and it, we moved from like the kids' books I have here somewhere, one of my very few books from childhood, which is a story about a boy called Patrick who meets up with a monster and goes on an adventure. And, uh, that's, I think that's the reason my parents got it for me and moved from there into like like the low grade. Well, it's not fair to call it low grade, but like Terry, there's a kind of a list of things you read in my generation if you were into fantasy. It was like Good Omens, Terry Pratchett, Neil Gaiman, Robert Rankin, who you might not know about. Um, mm-hmm. And then into okay. like my early teens, lots of science fiction, went through a lot of Asimov and Clark, and all of, a lot of the classics, and then just kept going. Uh, with occasional breaks until I would say around last five or six years, I've moved over into history and stuff and into the stuff and kind of moved away from fiction. This is the, uh, I, it's relatively rare for me to pick up a really big fiction book. So this was a nice, a nice surprise for me. A nice exercise. There you go. Nice. And if you were to uh, recommend some fiction that you have read in the past for somebody to read for gaming inspiration, what is a Patrick Stewart uh, recommendation? Uh, for gaming inspiration, I think yeah. that would be a big challenge. Uh, if I can think of anything that others wouldn't have already brought up. Okay, so I have a bunch of uh, this company called Games Workshop who publish a game called Warhammer. And back in the 80s, they published a lot of very primal, weird uh, game books. I guess they count as fiction. I have a few of those, and they are some of them are quite beautiful, though others are rather ugly. Uh, what else? Golden Age comics, does that count as fiction? Sure. Uh, sure. Very early stuff like Fletcher Hanks, uh, Stardust, 
and there's a series called The Regrettable Superheroes and Supervillains, which is weirdly fascinating. Uh, a series called Archie, which is the only comic Alan Moore still likes, I think. It's his favourite comic. If you can get your hands on that, that's beautiful. Pure fiction, I think... The last thing I read that springs to mind is Tales of the Marvelous and News of the Strange, and that's like a list of um, a list, a catalogue of Arabian era fairy tales. There's the main one people people know about, which is like the classy one, which is um, A Thousand and One Nights. And then in the last like twelve years, someone dug up this old manuscript, which is much more of a um, popular trash for the same period, for like I think the early the early Ottoman Empire, and it has a lot of like sketchy fairy tales from uh, the Arabic tradition, and that is um, very D&D and very gamey. You can take mm. a lot of those stories and just dump them straight into like an old school um, dungeon crawl. And Patrick, would you know if these were sort of an oral oral history, uh, oral tradition that was collected, or was it something that was like cheap dime novels that were being passed around the, the Ottoman Empire? I have so no idea. I think, I would have to guess using what I know about oral traditions, I would guess they're on that borderland between they have a lot of the cyclic and rhythmic structural things that suggest an oral transmission but on the other hand the very tenor of them has this very dirty paperback feel so i think <laughs> they might be in that that weird tale situation where someone like an old sci-fi writer goes out to like the boondocks interviews someone about a, for a story about the devil and it ends up in weird tales or something like that although i don't mm-hmm. think anyone really knows because i it, it comes i think from just one manuscript and um so they don't know a lot of the context for it and how many people were into it and why it was preserved. Definitely fascinating. Yeah, Tales of the Marvels and News of the Strange, right? Yes, I think that's right. Yeah, okay. Very cool. And let's go ahead and talk about which edition of the book we are working with today. I'm being pretty boring. I've got the Overlook Press ebook. Uh, nothing too exciting. Um, the cover art is just like some reads. It's, it's not particularly interesting. But uh, Hoy, what are you working with? Uh, I was using the ebook as well, and also the uh, Overlook uh, trade paperback from the 90s, which collects all three books in the Gorman Gas series with this nice infrared photo. That's what I'm doing work- working with. And how about you, Patrick? I got this vintage classics hardback, which has an nice. uh, uh, introduction by China Mayville, another one by uh, Peak's son, I think. And it has these interstitial uh, portraits, which Peak drew. Which Ooh, yeah. yeah, it has these, which are like the high, the, and it also has a lot of his like. Um, mo- apparently, when he was writing, he would scribble simple uh, images in the corner of the manuscript as aids to memoir, or just because he was the kind of guy who 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 would scribble. So there's like these as well. Mm-hmm. Love that is so cool. Mm-hmm. This is also what a, a gorgeous edition. Yes, I got it off eBay relatively cheap, so very fortunate for me. And Hoy, do we have a Hygaxian word of the day? I do, although I also want to call out uh, some words from our uh, book club. But the word I chose was lambent. It shows up five times. And I noticed that you had that in your review too, Patrick, of this yes. book that you run in your blog. And it means basically emitting light. And there's a couple of times, it appears, I think, believe five times in the manuscript. The time that it really struck me was when Kida is staying with the brown, the brown hermit. And he sort of almost emits his own light. So it's almost oh. like the, the closest to a, a a spiritually pure figure that we discover in this whole book. Yes, so. and he comes from almost nowhere, and, he, and he's, I don't think he's ever referred to again. I was right. expecting him to link back up with something, but he's just there, and then and then he's gone. Yeah. So uh, the word is lambent, uh, but I do want to call out uh, Gabriel Laycock uh, picked Welkin, which is a poetic word for sky, which ah, they used to yeah. refer to the 
sort of the crumbling ceilings in Gormenghast a couple times. And then as a total one-off, Dan Alexander found the word Ichabod, uh, which is obviously a name, but it's also an interjection used to express regret for departed glory. So what else could uh, oh. summarize this book uh, any better I, than Ichabod? I did not know that. Yeah. So thank you, Dan. And thank you, Gabriel. And Hoy, is there anything else we need to cover before we head on over to the library? I think that is it. Yeah. Sweet. So we are now in the library. Uh, Patrick, you've read this book before, correct? A long time ago. I think when I was in college, I was ch- I churned through a lot of like um, fantasy. Uh, and I remembered fragments of scenes as I came to them, but I didn't have a strong memory of the text and the prose and the quality of the book. And when I read it again, like it might be nearly 20 years later, it felt like an entirely different book. It wasn't just an act of memory. Like I think either I got smarter or I was less high this time. But the um, <laughs> the uh, the writing was just like as as I said, Lambent. It's the prosody, the depth of the imagination was just like wow. And I was I was really enjoying it. So um, that was a pleasurable. There are some books where you reread um and they're terrible, and you look back on your former self and you think, oh, you're an idiot. There are some where you remember them fondly and you cross your fingers when you reread them, and if you th- they're still just as good. You're like. Good work, younger self. You had reasonable taste. But with this one, it was the other way around. It was like I read it and I was wrong before and it got better. Right. I think that was a, that was sort of an implied theme in the book club, right, Jeff? Because you were talking about that you might not have gotten as, as much out of it when, if you tried to read this when you were you know, in your college years. Yeah, I don't think that I could have read this in high yeah. school. Yeah. But having read it now, I, I absolutely loved it. And Patrick, you've read the whole trilogy before? I've read the whole trilogy before. And to read for this, I went through Titus Grown and I've carried on into Gormenghast and I'm halfway through that. Wow. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. I've I've not yet read anything beyond Titus Grown. And Hoy, you hadn't read anything. Be- you hadn't read this before either, right? No, I've had this book for ages and ages, but never had a chance to read it up till now. So, yeah. All right. So, um, Patrick, you gave us a little bit of an insight into what your experience was reading at this time. So it sounds like you enjoy this book. Yes, thank God, because otherwise it would have been a terrible trudge through a very very (laughs) substantial book. But yes, I really enjoyed it. It was a a surprising uh, pleasure. And Hoy, what what was your experience reading this book? Right. Uh, well, I regret to announce that I did not completely finish this book, but... um, Hoy! Yes, this is like one of the few times in this 103 episodes... Um, I was supposed to have a day off on Friday and they called me into work anyway. So that was the problem right there. But uh, nonetheless, I really enjoyed this book, but it's not one that you can speed read through because the language is so rich, right? It's so atmospheric. Um, so um, I just kept on as good a pace as I could without trying to do a disservice to the book by skipping ahead. Um, but characterization, the prose, the, the setting, all of this is, you know, top, top tier. So. I agree. I I absolutely loved reading this. Uh, The prose was a little difficult for me at times, mostly when we would get four or five pages talking about rain. Like it's absolutely (laughs) delicious and gorgeous discussions of rain. But um, especially if I was feeling a little distracted, it was hard for me to really kind of focus in those moments. But I would say that overall, I just I loved this book. I especially loved the characters in this book. I feel like Mervyn Peake does with characters what Jack Vance does with setting. You know how like in the Dying Earth war uh, in the Dying Earth stories, each town is so incredibly distinct from one another and in in Titus Grown, each character is so incredibly distinct. Like I 
like it, and it doesn't take him long to like tell us kind of everything that we need to know to understand a character right away. Like even like with the introduction of Fuchsia, um, you know, she we 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 meet her, we discover that uh, she has, or she just does, she discovers that she has just had a younger brother born, and she's like very upset about this. So she's like, no, 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 this can't be true. Don't touch me. Get off me. But then Mervyn Peake tells us that nobody was touching her and nobody was anywhere near her. Uh, so like little moments like that, that are just like real, they're, they're really funny. And they also tell us a lot about the character. I was, I was loving those kinds of moments. Mm-hmm. Isn't one of Fuchsia's first scenes, like her relating to, she has like a magical space and it describes yes, her yeah, and the, the space yeah, and her yeah. adventuring in it and it being yeah. her like sacred space. And mm-hmm. then I think one of the first things she does is she writes seven clouds. She's looking at clouds and just imagining them in a very Mervyn Peak way. Like you imagine he would do. And then she just looks at the clouds and writes seven clouds and misspells it on the wall. And I think that, that stuck out to me. Right. <laughs> and I was struck by, because um, we didn't really have the idea of the teenager as a relatively recent invention, right? Probably around the late 50s, you know, the, the modern idea of the teenagers. But he really captured that sort of adolescent psychology in a way that was oh, yeah. very perceptive and sympathetic, but also allowing us to be fully exasperated with her when she is exasperating. So, yeah. <laughs> you know, so. Um, and I know he had a large family, so I think that he, he must have observed all of that going on. But mm, It's rare that you see someone who can really do grotesqueries really, really well and who can take you really deep inside people in such a sympathetic way. And he does mm-hmm. a, he, he flips you on people um, a lot because, especially in Titus Grown, several of them, like Flay starts as like a terrifying grotesque. And one of the first things he does is he basically murders Steer Pike or tries to by just locking him in a random room and forgetting about him. But by the end of the book, you've completely flipped over on this guy and it's like, oh no, he's um, he's still mildly terrible, but how he's fascinating and sympathetic. Uh, and it, the Dr. Prune Squalor as well, who is kind of the nightmare of speech. He's just like this babbling torrent of words, none of which mean anything. It's just, it feels like being drowned in um, fizzy pop. And then by the end of the book again, you're kind of on his side because he has a heart and a soul. Yeah. Yeah. And I agree that uh, Mervyn Peake does a really fantastic job of making all of the characters very sympathetic. I feel like his depiction of Gormenghast as this place that people just accept as they, they accept the ritual of it. They accept the existence of it. They the people who live within Gormenghast don't really envision an outside world. Like when Lord Sepulcrave goes missing, people are like, but then where would he have gone? There's nowhere to go. <laughs> and and also like just the way that people, the characters like Nanny Slag and Flay, they just absolutely accept the fact that their life is devoted to serving this family and they don't see that as something to be ashamed of. It's the, quite the contrary. They see it as this like incredible source of pride. They are people who have been given this um, really important position in the family, and they don't take that lightly at all. So it's interesting because it really is showing that like people who were living within these roles, they... Um, it, it helps us understand why it is that they feel the way they do. Right. It is, I think, well, firstly, they both got promotions. They were servants, and the servants, like in a lot of um, chivalric and romance tales, are basically just quantum agents who disappear and flow. They're a faceless crowd. But when they became Nanny Slag and Flay, they got like they became named characters, so that's important. Right. And, sec- and I think 
the outside world, the only thing in the outside world exists so that Sepulchrave can have books in his library. I think the only time he refers to something that comes from outside is when he's talking about his lost books and he's describing, he remembers, remembers exactly where every book was. He's mm-hmm. describing the poets to his daughter and I'm like, where did these poets write? That's the only time anyone says anything where there's like a world beyond Gorman Gast. Mm-hmm. Right. Which is why I was surprised when we actually followed Kita out of Gormenghast and into right. the, the the town with the bright carvers. I wasn't expecting us to ever see anything outside of Gormenghast in this novel. Well, we do. It's just them, and they're obsessed with Gormenghast as well because they're their mm-hmm. main. They make the bright carvings, and the reward for making the breast carving is you get to walk on the battlements of Gormenghast. Right, and that's it for yeah. a bit for like one day a year, right. and they ha- and again. Oh, and when Kidda goes on her long journey, she encounters people who do things, country folk, but they're nebulous. And we don't find out if they live in a particular place or if there's like a, a market right. or whatever. Right. That's so one the random be- person on a hill someplace. Yeah. <laughs> we start, I think it starts with the bright carvers and they're living outside Gorman Gast. They're looking at it. They're obsessed with it. They're working their entire life to make this one thing for the castle. And then it just gets stowed away and forgotten about. And that's like the, we start on that just staring at the castle from directly outside it and being completely absorbed by it. And the relationship is deeply, deeply tragic and sad mm-hmm. and kind of upsetting and grotesque as well. Jeremy uh, in the book club made a very interesting point that he felt this book could really only have been written by someone from from the British Isles. That um, And we had a number of people from the British Isles in our book too. And it has a different resonance to an American like because... In a, if this was written by an American, Steerpike would have been the hero, right? Because he's the one who tries to overthrow the system. He's right. like an individualist uh, uh, to the point of being a sociopath in this book. Um, so it's interesting the oppression or the sort of blanketing, smothering feeling that they have, but also that everyone buys into it without right. question. Incl- inc- including the author increasingly as time goes by. Right. In the first few chapters of Titus Grown, it really is horrific. Like y- yeah. you read it. You don't get much groove in many people. You start with the horrible Bright Carver's relationship. When you meet people, they're all horrible and somnolent and trapped in these cycles. But as time goes by and you meet more and more people and you encounter the castle more, you almost begin to have sympathy with this nightmare of ritual. And at mm-hmm. least some people in here get meaning from it. But yeah, mm-hmm. I would agree with it without having that much experience of living in other nations. I would say it's a very, very, very British book. Gormenghast is like hyper Britain. And it's very mixed relationship with ritual and time and the mingling of um love and rage and where you never really know like uh and it's very unclear if anyone's really in the right and everyone being slightly damaged but n- very few people being extremely evil is a very right. kind of like that that feels very uh, um on the mode for britain mm-hmm. <laughs> especially mm-hmm. for someone of his um generation right right yeah concepts of good and evil don't seem to really exist in this story <laughs> no not in like the manchian sense um i think there's empathy, and though evil exists, because Swelter is definitely evil, and mm-hmm. Steerpike is kind of evil, I think. Um, but that's about it. There's empathy, and people will grow. Yeah, Steerpike is the closest thing to supernatural evil that we can see in this book, right? Uh, you know that that there's, he is essentially evil because even I mean I'm uh, not Steerpike, I'm thinking Swelter. Steerpike oh, is. I wasn't, oh, I, I yeah, wasn't yeah. following you with that. Yeah, yeah, Swelter. I'm sorry. Um, okay, because he's just so ominous. Whereas Steerpike is sociopathic by the nature of being put into these horrible situations, having to work for Swelter, almost being left for dead by Flay. Um, right. and, and he's sort of negotiating these systems. And he's very clever 
but he can't, he has no empathy left, right? He, he just, he can see stuff and he can model stuff, but he doesn't actually have any feeling, right? Oh, yes. It's wonderful how he, um, oh, I'm losing, I don't have like reference right now to the way Pete describes him, but what's this called? He uses a metaphor. I think he uses one metaphor and he says, he calls like the, the sun, oh, the old cake bun. And that's kind of Peak illustrating in his way what inhumanity looks like. Because, you know, Peak loves looking at the sun, loves thinking about weather, will stare at a cloud for like five hours. And when he describes them in the book, never uses the same metaphor. And every single glimpse of every very slow environmental effect is beautifully and deeply imagined. And his version of what's the worst guy, it's like a guy who looks at the sun and thinks, oh, it's a big bun in the, in the sky. <laughs> right. pull, he's, like, he's like a zombie, man. He's not even real. Yeah, no aesthetic appreciation whatsoever. Right, exactly. right, right, right. That's like the worst crime you can have like, in this Gormenghastian world, right? Well, also ironically, because of the whole bright carvings, they do all this thing. They create these amazing, you know, masterworks. Then, like all but three are burned every year, and then mm-hmm. the rest of them are shoved up in this attic, never to be looked at again. With this one guy <laughs> who hasn't seen anyone else for like thirty years and gets his food <laughs> through, a, through a, like a dumb but a dumb waiter. And, that's right. the first. and he prefers it that way, yes, too. He gets he very anxious it. if he has to interact with anybody. <laughs> and that was great in the end of the book, too. Like, when he, like, looks... Like, when he's waiting for his food to come up and no food comes up, and he's like, what's going on? <laughs> and then he, like, looks out the windows and, like, realizes with the, the with what he's seeing out the window that, oh... Um, uh, Lord Sepulcrave must have died. This must be the the Earling's um, ceremony. And for a moment, he's sad that nobody told him, but then he's relieved because he <laughs> realizes he didn't have to actually interact with anybody. <laughs> so good. But yeah, the way that the way that Mervyn Peake describes nature is so incredible. Like one of the bits that I highlighted is once again, like him talking about rain. But it's this one sentence that I was just absolutely captivated by. And he said, it is falling from sky. It is falling from the sky in long, upright and seemingly motionless lines of rosy silver that stand rigidly upon the ground as though there were a million harp strings strung vertically between the solids of earth and sky. Yep. It's all like that. Like, it's just um, that's one of the things that I loved about. Like reading through the book, I knew that if a cloud came out or if we looked at a shadow for too long, I'd get another one of those. And they were all really good. And I was, I almost laughed out loud at a few of them, not from uh, ridiculousness, but just because, like, you motherfucker, you did it again. You did it yes. again. You did it differently. It's like, <laughs> did you just spend eight, like years thinking about this, or are you just that good that you can knock this off in like easily? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's it's that whole thing about how like, you know, oh, the Inuits have 300 words for snow or something like that. Mervyn Peak essentially has 300 words for for each uh, yeah. occurrence of weather and nature and yeah. stones. Yeah. You you say look yeah. at look at this big pile of stones, Mervyn, and you come yeah. back like an hour later and he's written like yeah. a like a stones, 50 line roots. poem that is beautiful. Yeah, roots, mm-hmm. you know, pieces yeah. of gnarled wood. Time uh, passing and nothing really happening. Yeah is like uh, those Ghibli-esque moments in anime or where it's just like, time's passing, this is all very slow, it's very beautiful, and nothing's really going on, but it's kind of beautiful and slightly sad at the same time. Mm. Uh, And intensely, intensely, vividly imagined, as if Mm. more than it would be if you were there. It's like uh, this very quiet moment, but like the passion... The transport level is like very high. Like he is there. It's like uh, he went on like a psychic journey or meditated or something, and he was seeing it 
vi- powerfully inside his mind, then just wrote it down. And the scene is like nothing happens, but it's like boom, you're in it. Now this is frequently on the best fantasy books of all times lists. Uh, Michael Moorcock has claimed that his, has has said that this is one of his favorite fantasy novels. Yet nothing intrinsically fantastic mm. happens in this book. Um, what are your thoughts on this book being kind of considered to be one of the pillars of fantasy fiction when it is pretty lacking in, in literal fantastic elements? I'm fine with it because I'm not like a big <laughs> genre boundary defense guy. And I'm, yeah, if it, it might not fit into like a modern version of like classic fantasy, but in a pre Tolkien version, if it, or I think Tolkien would have come out around the same time, it fits very neatly into like the general weird fiction area between Dickens and fantasy. And yeah. also, Norm- and just real quick, this book is post The Hobbit and pre The Lord of the Rings. Ah. And also normies wouldn't get it. Like if you took someone who's used to reading normal books and showed them this, I don't know if you get like a really good hit rate, but if you took someone who's used to reading a lot of weird fantasy and showed them this, they would definitely get it. Even mm, if they didn't yes. like it, they would get it. So you kind of know from that, that it just reeks of deep strangeness mm-hmm. and that many of the questions you would need answered in like a, a grown or a normal book are not going to even be asked or, or let alone answered. Patrick, maybe you have uh, some context for this, because I don't. Do you have any sense of how popular this book was in the British Isles just as, you know, general fiction, not not linked as fantastic, you know? Absolutely not. I know that uh, from the thing at the front, it says that, what, uh, that he was noted by a few by a few famous writers. There's, a, there's like uh, Narnia Guy Lewis was a big fan. Mm-hmm. I just said, this guy's amazing. So mm-hmm. clearly, some people were reading him right from the beginning. I was very right. impressed. Yeah, my I copy don't has, know if it made a big splash. Though, yeah, my copy so. has introductions by Anthony Burgess and Quentin Crisp. So right. there, there you go. Robertson Davies was apparently a big fan. So definitely the literati were aware of him. Uh, well, and I, and I, I don't know if, if what you're specifically asking about in 1948 when this came out, or if you're talking about the legacy since then, but I do know that the BBC put out like a four-part miniseries mm-hmm. based on the first two books. Yeah, and I know they've done radio plays. I'm just wondering what the, what the level of cultural consciousness that that uh, Mervyn Peake has in you know, oh you know, over there as opposed to over here. I, I can't imagine that. I think it's just a very very strong strand amongst a very particular group of people, like amongst mm. like the the group of literati slash weird fiction people slash fantasists. I'm I can't imagine this not being something that everyone reads at some point. I have no idea how things would go outside that group. Mm. It's it's big enough. I don't. Uh, this is a weird. This is a weird boundary that might not make cultural sense. There's a. It, it doesn't pass the in our time test. There's like a regular B- BBC Radio Four series called In Our Time with Melvin Bragg, which has been going for years. Where every episode they discuss like Pythagoras or um, a famous like uh, Victorian author, and they'll have like a bunch of people on, a bunch of academics. They'll say this and that, this and that, and they'll discuss it for like an hour. And that's like a a normie a normie cultural boundary of like if you can get on there your proper culture and if melvin bragg wouldn't know what to make of you then you're probably not normal culture it might be something else (laughs) (laughs) nice there you go it's nice to keep ourselves in our uh, you know uh, up in our up in our attic with our bright carvings and our weird fiction Yeah, and certainly it's it's it is really interesting reading this after reading as much sword and sorcery as Hoy and I have read as a part of this project. Oh yes, it must be because like nothing happens. Like, it's very like ambulatory. <laughs> yeah, and it's very meditative, and also like th- 
you know, fr- a frequent theme in sword and sorcery is we've got that like male fantasy um, that's being kind of played out. And sure, Steerpike is like he's young, he's strong, he's clever. He his his schemes always seem to work. But like this ultimately isn't about necess- necessarily about that like that isn't the the focus of what's happening but surprisingly mervyn peak's sense of action is also incredibly strong like we have two big fight scenes and they are both incredibly lengthy but our duel between the the kata's lovers and then the battle between swelter and flay are both very long sections they are so riveting and I was just like, I, I was glued to every moment. And also I feel like the characters themselves really informed the choices they were making in their combat. Like it all also seemed really in line with who these people were. Mm, the Kaja whole Kaja subplot is like, a, she, she seems to come not just from a different world, from a slightly different kind of story where people are less ridiculous. And mm-hmm. she feels like a normal almost like a normal romantic fantasy from her. It would fit, like, in with fantasy happenings, it would fit as fantasy. If you took it out, it would fit as, like, a normal romance. There's, like, a gypsy lady or a gypsy girl, whatever. She has to leave the clan, two lovers. It's very, very, like, um, normal. And the Flay versus Swelter fight is very much like... Um, uh, I'm trying to think of, like, a 19th or early 20th century, Edward Gorey. It's very, like, mm-hmm. almost comic booky. It's mm-hmm. illustrated. It's completely deranged. These two people who hover on the boundary of whether they would be physically possible. Flay would, but Swelter is kind of almost supernaturally fat and silent. And they're both mm-hmm. quietly mad, though everyone in Gormengast is. And right. they have these emblematic weapons. They chase each other through like piles of spiders right. and stuff like that. It's, and through shadows. And they taunt each other with like uh, tricks and traps. It's... Uh, right fascinating it's like opera but ridiculous it's right uh, but that's yeah. like all of gormenghast really swelter almost reminds me of like a comedic version of the judge from um yes cormac mccarthy's blood meridian print, maybe like a distant brother where one was yeah. like how <laughs> yeah. are you doing in gormenghast i'm like good how are you doing in the old west right right i just want to um, control everything around me you know right he's just that and he's just that border of supernatural um right. But I was struck by, as you were talking about, the both the vividness of those violence and those action scenes, but that no death is ever trivialized in this in this books, right? Mm. Right, that every death is is something to be mourned in its own way, you know, as diminishing the world, right? Right, everyone. Well, there's if there's no Manchian good and evil, then no one's death is really good. It's all very sad. Most of these people could have done something useful. Even Swelter is like a good chef, right? Uh, even though, and to be honest, the thing is. Compared to other characters, Swelter doesn't do anything evil apart from try to kill Flay, and that was a response to him being attacked. All he is is almost tangibly vile in every single interaction that you see him in. Right. But legally, like if you were to say to, you, you couldn't arrest him for anything just right. for being like monstrously sweaty and horrific and insidious and giving right. up every single bad vibe you could possibly give off. But other than that, he doesn't do anything wrong apart from like attack a guy who attacked right. him first. Right, right. I guess people were saying it's implied, but it's, again, as you say, it's never outright stated that he's somehow, you know, abusing the, I mean, maybe emotionally abused, but whether sexual no, or other no, abuse of the chef. No, he reeks of, like, vague sexual crimes towards children or boys, but yeah. you don't, 
but again, you don't really see him. He just looks at them like he's right. a man who feels like he's touching you, and he isn't. Right. And you feel if you're yeah. in the room with him, you like you get you have a stench on you just from walking away. <laughs> you're definitely getting like John Wayne Gacy vibes from him. But um, but it, we do we do know that Steerpike mentioned uh, Steerpike. Um, I guess doesn't say verbally, but Steerpike Steerpike acknowledges that Swelter had hit him previously Ah. so we do know that there is at least some physical violence that's associated with his interactions with the with the boys in the kitchen but then looking at this game from a gaming perspective um i'm curious like while you were reading this where was your game designer brain starting to kind of churn were there things that you're like oh i would love to steal that or oh that's inspiring me to think more about this a little. My world-building brain started churning, which I can't switch that off. And I was thinking about how you would do a Gormangast game. It would mm-hmm. be a challenge because, hmm, well, there's the environment, which is so labyrinthine, you couldn't really map it normally unless you were willing to put in a staggering degree of effort. So you would need to use some kind of generation system for that. Mm-hmm. And there's the motivations and resources of the people involved. With Gormangast, I think, firstly, you're playing inside a social hierarchy so you need people to be, know that and be like okay you're going to be a servant and you're going to be uh, the other class and you're going to be like a lower servant etc and then everyone has some degree of deranged mental illness or some degree of personality disorder where there's serious things there's things they can't, can and can't understand the things they can and can't do so it's very if you're imagining them as RPG characters they would be very swingy mm-hmm. uh, uh, like that and then what do they want People either want to break out of Gormagast and destroy it, or they want to fulfill the rituals, or they want power. And so that brings you back to like a question we can't really answer with the information we get from any of the books, which is, why do people want to fulfill the rituals? Why do they want Gormagast to keep going? And we don't know why, other than that the rituals just have to be fulfilled. It's like the source of meaning for the entire castle. That's what the Earls do. It's what the Master of Rituals do. Everyone goes towards feeding the Earl and keeping him fine. All of this stuff, all these things, and he just performs these strange actions. It's almost as if he's like, um, if you were to literalize it, which I think would be slightly boring, he's like keeping the world going. He's keeping this little pocket of reality sane just by performing these things. Mm-hmm. And then, but if you were to put it in a game, you'd probably have to have an answer to that. Like, what are they doing? Is it meaningless? In which case, this is like a dark comedic game, or does it have some kind of genuine meaning? In which case, you kind of have to expand the world a little bit, at least tangentially, to give it some kind of answer. Right, right. There has to be some sort of token or expression of if you're trying to keep the status quo, which most players are obviously kind of people who come in and kick things over and destroy things, right? Mm. Uh, what would incentivize them to to maintain that? And is it, as you say, Patrick, something that's outer to that, that's more horrible, that if they don't keep that under control and that that erupts through? And Steerpike is an agent of chaos, right? Right, yeah. (laughs) It would be hard because the games are about activity and doing things. And Gormenghast is a a world of people who only do certain activities and definitely don't do things and don't change things. So you're doing a game about maintaining stasis and playing out imprisoning ritual personal roles. So it would be an interesting game to try to do, but a challenging one. And also part of me wonders, like, is Gormenghast an OSR location like Teagle Manor or like Maze of the Blue Medusa? Or is it like uh, the Warden in Metamorphosis Alpha, where Gormenghast is the world? I think it's probably more of a demiplane situation where you just don't leave. I can't imagine a game set in Gormenghast where the question comes up of, okay, let's leave Gormenghast and go somewhere else. Like, you're yeah. either in there or you're not. 
Um, and if you're in there, then that's an entire reality for you, I think. Um, mm-hmm. You could maybe do, it wouldn't even be an adventure in Gormangus. It would have to be, it's more like a city in scope. So if mm-hmm. you had put it in like a, a classic OSR sandbox game, it wouldn't be like get going into one place and then getting out. It would be like being sucked into this this whirlpool of just unending stone passages and maybe not being able to find your way out or having to do something to get out or just never leaving ever because it's it's mega dungeon size mm-hmm. and the the poetics and the aesthetic of it are all very much about it, it being a whole and complete thing into right. itself. I like your idea of I think there's obviously some fixed points like the library, you know, and and you know the various personal quarters, um, but the interconnections probably do have to be generated so that you stumble upon stuff randomly as you're trying to navigate this hulk and no two ways are is it ever going to be the same i took a left turn this time and ended up someplace else and then eventually get back to where i'm going but um but i was uh struck i see it was gabriel i think he was mentioning uh you know coming in there and like when if we had a gorman gas game would end especially if you were outsiders would you discover it like after 400 years after it was gone and trying to piece together what the meaning of Gormenghast was, if it was like a, a traditional mega dungeon or, you know. Uh, but I was struck by the idea that there was times when um, Peak changed the uh, time frames, right? Like he sort of circles back in times. Like this thing happened, then he circles back to like a scene that happened two weeks earlier and plays it forward from there. Um, and there's times when he switches tenses, like just before the whole breakfast, he switches to the present tense, right? The omniscient present tense. So I would be interested to see maybe like if you were playing a game, again, maybe a more traditional OSR game, you go into Gormenghast and then not only is it physically generated, but also the time frame in which you interact with uh, Gormenghast is randomized. So you might see Gormenghast before any of this happened when it was at its peak and still being built or after it's a ruin or during the actual period of the story, you know. That would be an interesting challenge, I think. Yeah. Uh, so just randomizing the point in history in which you encounter, but not randomizing like uh, scenes or elements taking place within the adventure in the way that Peak did in the story. Right. So I guess that would be another layer of complexity. Uh, look, anyone, anyone, anywhere who wants to even try turning Gormenghast into an adventure, a dungeon or anything, you've got my blessing. Good luck to you. <laughs> it's, it's like, good, good, I'm sure you'll make a good effort and it'll be a noble, noble attempt, but like, come on, man. <laughs> it's gonna be just the sheer depth and scale of it is like i don't know i don't know where you would begin unless you want to be like an old school grognard who spends like 20 years and be like uh, i've been working on my gorman gas since 20, 1985 and i've just completed it like <laughs> phil tippett just released his like animation that he's been working on for like 10 years right. it, would be, it would be one of those projects where all right yeah a guy or, uh, spends decades on it right what's that what's that mega dungeon that just came out last year Hall, halls of arden vool or something like that uh, that was like a 10-year project <laughs> but um one thing i would like to see happen in uh if somebody were to do something like this i would love that that reveries chapter where we just go into oh, everybody's internal monologue God. i think it would be really fun in an, in an rpg to have like potentially like all of the pcs have, have have been gathered for this really boring ritual and i want each player and there will be a timer and i want you to like have like a two-minute monologue of just like the inanity of what's going through your brain during this, and we'll just go around the table and experience each person's monologue. Yeah, that comes out of nowhere, doesn't he? Doesn't do it ever before that point. He doesn't do anything quite like it ever since. He just yeah, right, we're going deep into we're going deep into first person recollection just from inside their heads. And yeah, there's a lot of bits of Gorman Guest that are a bit story gamey like that. It would fit mm. 
because the characters are so um, mixed up. And they have like very story gaming backgrounds. Like you've got depression, uh, you are obsessed with animals, you just want to serve your lord, you don't know what's going on. It's like stuff like that. It would fit in relatively well if the purpose of the game was just to express character. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And we just talked, uh, you know, in the you know, it seems very uh, potentially larpy, you know, especially if you could find like some castle or manor, mm-hmm. you know, to rent out for the weekend to do this for. <laughs> Yeah, I think a LARP where if you win Gormenghast, if you're the main cast, the game ends with, and nothing had changed. And it's like, every, 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 like every adventure is like some something's going to change in Gormenghast. And then a bunch of mentally ill weirdos have to try and stop it from happening without really realizing what it is or what it's going to be and without breaking their highly specific personal rules. Right, and it's right. like, if, you, if nothing changes by the end, you've won. Right. I love it. Like Steerpike is not the NP is not the PC. Steerpike is the NPC mm-hmm. and all right. the PCs are trying to keep right. the agents of chaos mm-hmm. from messing anything right. up. Well, this makes I it, do love that. That actually makes it a Call of Cthulhu game, right? Because Call of Cthulhu game is the only game I know specifically that's about maintaining the status quo. <laughs> right. Oh yeah. Right. Sure. And, and having a bunch of weirdos. <laughs> yeah. But now Patrick, if you were to play in the Gormenghast LARP, which character would you want to pick for yourself? Uh my I would uh, my ambition would be um, I'm not sure I'm worthy to play Dr. Prune Squalor because he's so wonderfully, <laughs> insanely verbose. Uh, if I wish I could talk like Dr. Prune Squalor could talk, if I could pull it off. But I think playing Nanny Slag would be good because oh, yes. she's, so, she, she's got some nice, it's relatively easy to improvise what she's doing. And she can. And she oh, can my like, heart, my oh, heart, my heart, my poor heart. Oh, oh, you would think no one had seen me at all. Oh. And you can move around just irritate everybody. <laughs> And Hoy, what's your answer? Um, I had originally said in the book club, the poet, you get to guess, you know, stick his head out and be irascible for a moment. And this is assuming the steer pike is off the table, because I think anyone American would sort of gravitate towards steer pike because he's, this, again, an agent of action, right? Um, but hmm, actually, I, I'm definitely coming around to Flay. Uh, you know, I, he has a, a certain thing to him, I think, you know, I'm not sure exactly mm. what it is. And, but. and you just have to just take 90% of the words out of every sentence you speak. Right. And I would like crack my, I would like crack my elbows and my knees a lot. You know, and my neck go crick, 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 crick. <laughs> I mean, I think the whole purpose of LARPing Gormenghast would be to, like, try to find as many ways as possible to irritate your fellow players with some sort of tick or verbal mannerism without <laughs> actually getting them to curse you out. <laughs> and I would want to say that, I mean, I think Gert, um, that the Countess Gertrude would be a fun character just because of, like, the ridiculousness of the cats and the birds. But I don't really know how much interaction I'm going to get to have with the people with her. Mm-hmm. So because of that, I kind of feel like I'd want to play one or both of the twins. Oh, trying to play both twins would be fun. Yeah. Yes. That would be a weird thing to do. <laughs> and they are genuinely completely bonkers and have almost no sense of morality left. Right. You can just stare at people. Oh, you could wear, like, a mirror or something. If right. you could look at some kind of mirrored apparatus, so there were two of you, and you had like an extra dress, and you just flounced around and stared blankly at people. <laughs> exactly. Or, or I'm just like uh, holding a little mannequin next to me that's right. dressed like I am. Right. <laughs> we just like walk side right. by side the whole time. The other thing that would be really funny and completely would be to get someone who's like completely physically disparate from you, but you buy, both play, you know, one half of the twins, but you just make sure <laughs> that you each have the same mannerism, but you're like completely disparate. That would be pretty, fr- pretty freaking hilarious in its own way, too. So. <laughs> And that was one thing that was interesting about this, too, which you also don't really see often in kind of role-playing games, is that, like, we don't really have very many young, able-bodied characters. Like, almost everybody is, like, old, decrepit, Mm -hmm. they're they're a dwarf, or they're missing limbs, or 
they're, you know, 90 years old or they're incredibly obese or (laughs) (laughs) every character with the exception of Steerpike seems to. But even Steerpike is the most physically competent, but when he's described, he's like this. Right. His shoulders, His shoulders are, are intensely high, high. Got, and got he has a big forehead, a big forehead, and dull red eyes. Yeah, which is just like what the effing like again. That's like, are you a monster or something? Right. Is that possible? Uh, and a, like this knob of straw hair. Yeah, it's like a Dickensian characters right. of the kind that you see more of. I think, uh, uh, I think in Britain or at least from my social milieu, I live in like um, on a place called the Wirral, and one part of the Wirral is quite posh which is over there. And one part of the Wirral is close to Liverpool and it's like much poorer and is based around old shipyards. And when you go from like the nice area to the to Birkenhead, which is the less nice area, you go from like BBC land where people look normal and everyone's kind of like, oh, hey, how are you? And everyone's relatively well-dressed. And you go down to like Gorman Gas where everyone's kind of slightly messed up. Right. Um, <laughs> I think it's just maybe a consequence of like being poor or like being less wealthy, which is everyone everyone feels slightly like bonkers and it's a little bit off, and that's kind of actually where I'm from. So um but yeah, that's that definitely sticks out. I definitely see a line of continuity there, Patrick, you mentioned from you know, because all of Dickens' sort of um you know, especially his lower class characters, right, have that sort of, you know, their own uh unique flavor. So from there to peak to Michael Moorcock's secondary characters, because Michael Moorcock always has those, like, like you know, all the people in the court of Malibini, like, do- what's the uh, the doctor, the, the horrible surgeon, Jeff? The torturer surgeon? I don't remember his name. But from there, and then to the Games Workshop stuff, like, you know, the grotesqueries in the Games Workshop, uh, early, especially in the early art, like Ian Miller and a, a lot of the other artists in Games Workshop. Ian Miller did Gormangast paintings as well, and they're amazing. Yeah. A lot of everything Ian Miller does is good, but this is, like, a beautiful synergy between artists and subject. Yeah, so and then so I think there's definitely a through line, and it does feel very, feel, feel very British, right? America has this like mythology of everything being new and and you know with no roots, de novo. Whereas like you know here, literally, the people and the roots, the roots is a theme that keeps on coming up to, right? The physical roots that are gnarled and twisted and turning, right? And so, um, just just an observation, but. And one thing I really liked about reading this book is I feel like not only are the characters so unique and flavorful and interesting, but I feel like you could take these characters, you could take any character from this story and port them into any genre of game, which I don't feel like is really true with a lot of other things that I've read in the past. But like Prune Squaller, I could see him in an Old West game. I can see him in a Mothership game. Like I can, same thing with like Nanny Slag. Like a lot of these, like, like, like obviously their relationship to Gormenghast, like to 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 the um, the entity with which they serve might change, but their personality ticks and the way they talk, right. I feel like could be transported to anything. That's true. That's so vivid and strong. Maybe the only place you couldn't take them would be like a really hardcore like um, social realist game where you're playing like. Like I'm imagining some Nordic lab where it's like we're going to put office workers and we're going to be very real people. Everyone's going to be very normal, and you <laughs> couldn't put a Gormenghast character in that. But in most game games, you could because they just pop. They're so vivid, and right. they have enough depth once you get into them to still be interesting. But like you can grab hold of one of them, and it's like this very solid cluster of physical properties and behavioral ticks and attitudes. You could write them down on a page and just go really easy. That's true. It's it's <laughs> fascinating that that's the case. Right. Right. Although wasn't it Adam who said that uh, it was yeah, yeah. That, said it, like your co or if you've ever been in a situation with a lot of coworkers then that's like Gorman Gas. <laughs> you know? he, he's like you'll see all, he's like you'll see all the characters in Gorman Gas by, by looking around <laughs> all your coworkers. 
But yeah, I would love to see some kind of really involved random generator to kind of come up with Gormenghastian style characters. I think that would be amazing. Uh, again, I fully support anyone who wants to put together the D1000 list of, of yes. Gormenghastian characters. I reckon you could... I wonder if this is the kind of thing that an AI could do. I wonder if you could put Gormenghastian Dickens into an AI and say, generate me a, li- a, a, a combinatorial list of like properties that people have and just start, exactly. just start spitting them out. Yeah, I just need a name. I need some some um, some strange physical feature that I can focus mm-hmm. on, and then some some strange maybe like quirk of the way they speak, mm-hmm. and and like immediately like you've got a Gorman guest character, and the name has to be borderline real, like it could mm-hmm. conceivably be real, and just ridiculous enough to stick out, but not so ridiculous it goes fully into impossibility like it has to be a name that you could maybe encounter in real life and be like is that real but not a fantastic one right right yeah what um i mean obviously one thing we're talking about here that would be um you know not to be a downer obviously we have all these characters who are physical grotesques is this something we could even write in this day and age you know given the the concerns about ableism and all that kind of you know Uh, (laughs) all those other issues that you know i mean are legitimate but i'm just saying is this something that we could you know. I think I could. I'm not sure if other people could. And I'm, I think you would have to like gird your loins before you went for it on this one, because there's no real way uh, you would get this past Twitter without an argument. You mm-hmm. don't. You can't really dress it up as being having like a positive view of um, uh, the disabled because or other able because it's crazy grotesqueries, and that's just what it is. You would right. have to be like, I'm doing this. It's literature, and if it isn't literature, it's fantasy. <laughs> send your complaints to this address and, and we're going but yeah right. uh, it, it's possible i can imagine a backlash against it maybe of some kind i just think it's in the way that you frame it like if it's going to be like a d100 table of grotesque features mm. if that's how you're entitling it and then one of the grotesque features is that you're a dwarf and another grotesque feature is that you're an amputee that's pretty offensive and maybe isn't the best way to state that but if it was like a d100 table of physical quirks like I, I don't think that that is at all offensive to like roll up a random character with physical quirks, and your random physical quirk is that you're a dwarf, or that yeah. you know you your 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 two legs um are are not fully formed. Maybe, but I, I don't know if that's really true to what the thing would be because if we're talking specifically about Gormenghast, people aren't just different; they are all slightly physically monstrous, and that mm-hmm. is a part of what it is. Uh, if you neutralized it and made it nice and just say these are some physically different people who have a bunch of like interesting ticks it wouldn't be the same they are like shadowy and meant to be a bit disturbing and a bit strange and and very very slightly upsetting so you are playing with physical differences monstrousness whether you no matter how you label it i don't know right. i think i would probably go with my method but uh right. I, I, I would consider it an american problem and a twitter problem and not one that i would worry that much about personally but i'm like uh good luck to you guys Right, right. I mean, yeah. I mean, you're also characterizing things like uh, potential, as you say. It's, it's, is it a tick or is it, you know, actually mental illness? You know, a lot right. of these things is, you know, is uh, does Fuchsia have some sort of developmental, emotional developmental? Well, a lot of them, emotional developmental disorder. Is, uh, is the Countess, you know, uh, in some way, shape, or form, autistic? You know, is she a lot magic, of times she though? Yeah, is, is she, she magic? Like, is she yeah. a witch? What's good? Like, uh, yeah. Be, uh, yeah. Because well, <laughs> there's certain scenes, like, she's, yeah, she's, she's got these amazing powers of the animals, but there's that scene in the library, the whole thing is burning down. She's almost, like, not catching on that it's burning down, right, right for a while, and it's like, what's going on there, right? You know? 
But also with Lord Sepulcrave and his like owl transformation, yeah. like it, right. it sounds as though like maybe his eyes actually were becoming strangely right, exactly. oval shaped right. and his, but was it just because he was so engrossed in the delusion right. that like it just really came across in the physicality or was he actually changed? Right. And I love that we as the readers don't know the right. answer to that mm. question. Right. And I love that that's the trigger. That's Steer Pike's mistake when he makes that out, that out eye gesture and that's what triggers flay to you know use the cats as missiles and throw her, you know? oh yes <laughs> right. that's one of a number of low grade horrible things there are bits where stepak just does horrible things because he knows he can get away with them and yeah. nothing else <laughs> and then there's no point behind them they're not part of some ep- epochal plan like i'm halfway through Dormengas now and there's one where there's a bunch of teachers sitting outside waiting to go to a party and one of them goes bang and something's bitten him or hit him on the head and it just cuts to stepak like seven floors up with like a slingshot <laughs> going jing for no reason like he doesn't have some some labyrinthine scheme he's just dicking with people because he can get he can do it or also what about um uh sour 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 what's dust. His name again sour dust sour dust sour dust's head so when sour dust dies suddenly like oh, people yes. can't find where the head is <laughs> and so i assumed somebody had like a a, a plan for right. it and then later in this story um um, Steerpike uses it as like the head of like the Scooby Doo style <laughs> ghost, where he's going to go and like scare the twins. But what what I especially love about that though is because that could not have been his plan at the time he took the head <laughs> because he had no way to know he was going to need it for that. I just love the idea that that means Steerpike stole the head <laughs> right. because he's like this will probably come in in in, in this will be useful later. <laughs> I don't know how, but it will. He's a PC. He's a D and D character. Yeah. Like, I'll take that. I'll take that. Right. Yeah. You never know. Yeah. Exactly. I'll I'll use an item slot for um, sour dust decapitated head. Right. Right. Well, that is the odd thing, right? He is in many ways the most relatable. Uh, you know, certainly as a D and D, you know, as a role player, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> right, right. Which is kind of strange. But anyway, yeah. And we are starting to run out of time here. But I'm curious, Patrick, do you have any kind of final thoughts about Titus Grown that you would like to share that we maybe didn't get a chance to talk about? Uh, I don't think so. I think I think I mentioned that maybe it should be an anime because it's an intensely visual novel that has a lot of very quiet moments and it's not really plot driven. So, like a ninety-hour Ghibli animation that was massively over-resourced would be a good idea. And I would say if you like fantasy and if you've read it and didn't like it, give it like twenty years till you're middle aged and try it again because then there's, <laughs> there's a good chance that you will like it then. Oh, and quick side question, Patrick, have you seen the miniseries? I don't think I have. I think I've seen fragments on YouTube, but I haven't seen the okay. whole thing. Okay, right, right. It's Jonathan. Because Riz- I'm curious, yeah. but I'm not going to watch it till I've read the second. Right, book. right. It's Jonathan Riz Myers, right, playing Steer Pike. I think so. Yeah, yeah. No, I haven't yeah, seen yeah. It myself either. But all right, Hoy, do you have any final thoughts? Um, no, I'm definitely very well. I should say yes. I'm actually very eager to rest, read the rest of the series. I know it's a shame that he never finished it, you know, because you know his his illness caught up with him before he he could uh, peaks. Um, but I think this is. Um, a monumental work. I think it's very influential without being directly influential. In other words, that other people have in, been influenced by it and have, and that, that, that those people are then influential, but Gormenghast itself is not directly cited by a lot of people, I don't think, is my, is yeah. my impression. No, it's like a mountain on the road that a lot of writers walk around and they'll nod at each other and be like, oh, you, you know Gormenghast? And they'll be like, yeah, we've all walked around that mountain and we all remember it. It did something to us, but uh, you couldn't define exactly what. Yeah. <laughs> Amazing. 
So Patrick, do you have any projects that you would like our listeners to be aware of that are coming up? Uh, I think I have. I have a Kickstarter, which just started, but I think by the time this comes out, we'll have just finished. So go back in time and, and hit that, oh, no. smash, smash that <laughs> like button. Um, <laughs> and then I probably, uh, I have my books. If you want to Google Patrick Stewart RPG, if you want to buy any of those, they're available for the Lamentations and through my false parcels web store or just read the blog. I'll right. probably have something coming up in the next six or seven months, right. hopefully in 2022. Well, this is the uh, Demon Bone Sarcophagus Kickstarter, which just started, but it is a multi-part uh, project. So ultimately we might be able to see yes. the other lookout for the second and third parts, right? So that it's would be... In, uh, in, hopefully in 2022 and 2023, yes. Right. Frictionless Blue Glass, I believe is your the working title for the second part. Yes, and mm-hmm. the last one is Palaces of Fire. There you go. Stay on the lookout for that. And that's with Scrap, right? Yes. Beautiful. Very cool. Now, Patrick, do you have a social media presence that you want to push people toward? Uh, I think I'm P. James Stewart on everything. I'm on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. If you, the blog is the main thing. If you really want to find, see me announce things, that's False Machine. And if you want to see me paint miniatures and go on walks around the world, go to my Instagram. And if you want to see me just not say very much, go on my Twitter. And kind of the same deal with Facebook. Perfect. Oh, and there's a YouTube channel, it. which I haven't updated in like five, a long time, years. But there's some old interview videos in there, which some people quite like. So, Cool. And Hoy, if people are looking to find uh, find out more about us or contact us, how would they do that? All right. You can email us at appendixnbookclub at gmail.com. Uh, you can also find us on Twitter at, at appendix underscore n. Uh, if you like us, please rate us and review us on your podcatcher of choice. Uh, it does help people find us. And Jeff, how about our Patreon? Yes, so our patrons now get to vote on the books we're reading, which is why we are now three episodes into like such incredibly cool titles. Uh, our patrons have now chosen that for episode 110, we will be covering Fred Saberhagen's Changeling Earth. And when this episode drops, our patrons will be able to vote on the following four titles for episode 113. Your choices are Michael Moorcock's The Jewel in the Skull, Edgar Rice Burroughs' A Princess of Mars, another Edgar Rice Burroughs title, Pirates of Venus, or Jorge Luis Borges Labyrinths. Those are your four choices for episode 113. I would also like to give a shout out to our patrons who joined us for our patron book club today. So thank you to Jeremy Harper, Gabriel Laycock, Dan Alexander, Adam Stiers, and Rick Byrne for joining us. I would also like to give a shout out to a few of our other patrons as well. Thank you to Richard Reed, Robert Coleman, Vixter, Robert Poynton, Patrick Pilgrim, Lucio Nothlich Pimentel, Joseph Hootman, and Eric Hicks. We really appreciate your support. And if you would like to show your support, please head on over to patreon.com slash appendix and book club. Uh, the next two episodes we'll be covering, episode 104 is going to be on Clive Barker's Books of Blood, Volume 1. And episode 105 is going to be G.K. Chesterton's The Man Who Was Thursday, A Nightmare. So cool stuff coming up on the Appendix N Book Club. And Patrick, again, thank you so much for joining us. This has been really fun. Fantastic. It was a great pleasure. It was nice to meet both of you. Lovely. It was, it's an honor. I've been uh, reading your works for years. And so it's a treat to meet the man behind the magic. Oh, thank you. Yeah. All right, everybody. See you in the stacks. Read on. The library is closed.